Let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Lord, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you, Lord, for the word of God that you have revealed for us, Lord, so that we can have a better understanding of who you are, most importantly, but Lord, also because you desire to instruct us. And so, Lord, as we receive your truth today, may it be um, a healing to our souls. May it be a, a strengthening, Lord, to, the, to our lives as we seek to live uh, for your glory today. And Lord, we ask that uh, what we know not, that you would teach us. What we have not, Lord, that you would give us. And Lord, what we are not, that you would uh, make us, Lord. We, we realize that, that part of the, the progressive sanctification, the, the working out of our Christian life, is to become more and more like your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, would you help us make progress in that direction this morning as you seek to instruct us and guide us and strengthen us with your word. And uh, Lord, I just ask for help as your messenger, Lord, that you would uh, allow me to, to faithfully proclaim your truth to your people. And Lord, even to those who may be listening today that don't know you, Lord, may your gospel be seen in all its beauty and glory. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Well, it is a joy again to be with you this morning. And um, as we have been going through the book of Exodus, I am just always challenged as to how relevant it is to the things that we're going through. And this morning I want to talk a little bit as we begin by one of the things that we are seeing not just happening over the past few months, but it's happened yesterday and probably is happening right now in some places in our country. And that is when a group of people in a town or a city don't like something that has happened or feel aggrieved about how they are being treated, they'll often gather together in support of one another and show their disapproval by marching on City Hall or marching toward the mayor's residence. And the point of the protest is to demand that the leadership listen and take action for the perceived abuses that the crowd believes has taken place. Now friends, this is a wonderful part of the democracy that we have in our country. Uh, there are many countries where people don't have the freedom to be able to stand up and be heard. And so there's, there's this freedom of speech that we enjoy, and there's peaceful protests that are allowed to take place. The problem is that the crowd isn't always right. And sometimes they're right, but at other times they're not right. And they may have been cleverly deceived by a group of people that have led them to believe something that isn't necessarily true. But when the crowd turns into a mob, it usually stops thinking. And it usually is driven and end egged on by the passions of the crowd. And that could result in acting and thinking and behaving with, uh, without sense and without a clear mind. And friends, this is what we call a mob mentality. Out of control, not thinking, fueled by one another. Well, in our text today, Moses is going to face a very passionate mob of Israelites expressing their displeasure and demanding that he act to satisfy their desires. Now, let's just think a little bit about the context. Israel is now across the Red Sea. They have been gloriously delivered by God from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. What a story that is. And the, the ten plagues that he brings to demonstrate his authority and power and to bring Pharaoh and the Egyptian army down to their knees, ultimately destroyed in judgment. But now we find them in the wilderness. And this is a new experience for Israel. This is totally foreign to them. And as they enter into the wilderness, chapter 15, they end up grumbling because they can't find any water. And the question we ask there is this, will we trust God to provide? And then we moved on to chapter 16 because in chapter 15, God ultimately did provide water. He provided all the satisfaction they needed. Then in chapter 16, as they moved on into the wilderness, they again grumble, but this time it's because they're hungry. And God once again provides bread and quail for them 
to eat. And we ask the question there, will we trust God when He provides? Not just to provide, but when He does provide, will we trust Him? Now, when we come to our text today, Exodus 17, we almost are kind of entering into some similar territory here. But we find them thirsty again. But in this text, we'll ask ourselves the question, will we test God with our demands that He must provide? And so this morning, I would like for us to think about this theme, a warning to not put God to the test. These are God's children. These are His people. And yet, this text tells us that they put God to the test. And friends, if they can do it, then certainly we can be guilty of the same thing. See, God has been testing Israel in the wilderness. We find that actually in the text of chapter 15, and we see that also happening in chapter 16, and it it is ongoing here in chapter 17. But now the people have had enough of the testing and they turn the tables, and they're saying that they will put God to the test. Look at verse 2, the latter part. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? What we have here is a courtroom setting. Israel is taking God to court, demanding that he acts and provides for them. And it will go down as a shameful day in the history of Israel. But it will also go down as a glorious day in the plan of God's redemption. Let's begin now by looking at the first point that I'm calling another crisis. As we read this text, it's almost deja vu, isn't it? It seems like we've been down this road before. It's a new day, however, and it's a new journey, and so it's a new struggle in the wilderness of sin. And let's read verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So how do we view this new but similar crisis? How does it develop? Well, let's just be honest with the text. First of all, there clearly is a submission by the people to what God is doing in leading them in the wilderness, right? They submitted to his leadership. Now, we're not giving a timestamp, so to speak, to say this is when they left and this is how long it took, but we know that they are moving in the wilderness of sin to Rephidim. Now, it's not that the wilderness of sin was one location and Rephidim is another location. The wilderness of sin is this vast desert area in which there is a place called Rephidim. It's also worth noting here the wilderness of sin does not mean the wilderness of sin in the sense that we understand the word sin. It's actually a simplified version of the word Sinai. So it's this Sinai area by, uh, by that region of the Mount Sinai, okay? So it's, it's a little different than we think. So don't jump to conclusions and don't, don't spiritualize this text like, ah, oh, this happens in the wilderness of sin. It's a region that just happens to have a similar sound and a similar name. But we're, we're told here the people having been watered and fed by God's hand continue on in stages according to the commandment of the Lord. So, so far, so good. They're submissive. They're following the Lord's lead here, right? Now we want to think about the word expectation because they had an expectation of God's leadership. It seems, based on the context, that they had an expectation that He would provide for them as He had promised and as He had done in the past. He provided the water at Marah and in Elam. He provided the quail and the manna in the wilderness. And friends, it's not necessarily unusual for us to function based on past experiences and therefore to have built-in expectations that may or may not be accurate. Yesterday, my wife and I decided to go on a date together, a breakfast date. And we got in the car and we started driving down the hill from our house and I noticed that the, um, the, 
the low air warning light came on for the back left tire. And I was like, oh, okay, this is not good timing. But okay, I think I know what I can do. We can go down the hill from our house and there's a gas station that I always go to when I need to fill up the tires or uh, when I'm riding my mountain bike and putting air in there. And, or sometimes I think on some odd occasions I've had some inner tubes, maybe when we've been going in the water someplace. But I, I, you know, I, I've been there before and I just go in and they're very, very kind and helpful. But one of the things that's happened with this, uh, this gas station is they've changed companies a number of times. They were a mobile, then they were a speedway. They were a mobile again, and now they're back to being a speedway. So I don't know if this is the same people working there or not, but I always go there, and the same thing happens, right? So I pull up to the air station and proceed to go inside, and as I usually do, I, I go inside, and I ask them if they can just press the button to turn on the air so I can put it in the tires. Now, years ago, I found out that there was a law in California that gas stations are required to provide free air. You just have to go inside and ask them to do that. Well, yesterday, uh, when I asked the lady behind the counter if she could please press the button, she said, well, are you going to buy any gas? And I responded, well, no, not today. I'm all fulled up at the moment. I've just been to Costco and got gas there. didn't say that to her, but I told her, you know, I'm, I'm all full right now. And then she said, well, then you have to pay for the air. That's why there is a payment station out there. Then I said, honestly, truly surprised. Um, is this a new policy? I have been coming here for years, and I have just simply come in and asked if you can press the button, because I know there's a button back there. It's a secret button, right? And, and just to fill up, you know, just some air in the tire and stuff like that. And the nice lady behind the counter said, those former employees were very lax and did not enforce the proper policies. Sensing her tone, I responded, oh, I see, that's unfortunate. And then after a moment of silence, I said, so does that mean that you're not going to press the button? And she looked at me with those stern eyes, because all I could see was a face mask, but the eyes can communicate a lot of things, right? She says, I'll do it this once, but next time you'll have to pay. And then I thanked her profusely and went outside and put air in the tire, and it was all good. When I got home, I Googled the regulation, and this is what I found. In 1999, a law was passed that required service stations in California to provide free air to customers who purchased fuel. <laughs> so she was right, I was wrong. I had been functioning with unfounded expectations all the time. Expectations that had been reinforced by lax employees, lax former employees apparently. And the caution for us now is that our perceived expectations, when not met, can result in our own exasperations. I could have, in that moment, allowed my sinful nature to kick in and say, you know, I have come here all the time and I demand that you do this. Why can't you do this? But I didn't. I was trying to be kind and nursing. I was actually getting ready to say, you know, I'll use a credit card and do that kind of stuff. But here's the deal, guys. Our expectations, whether they're right or wrong, they're perceived when not met can result in our own exasperation. And that's the last word here. There was submission, but there was some expectation with that submission, but now it moves into exasperation. And, and we get that not so much from verse 1, but the context of what's going on here with verse 1. You can almost imagine them thinking, we have followed God's commandments, but we are thirsty, and once again, there's no water to drink. You can almost hear them saying, this is really frustrating. Why are we thirsty again? Now, I mean, the thinking already, God has already shown that he can provide water if he wants to. So why is he not providing water for us now, right? Why... Uh, you know, we've already learned this lesson. We get the point. Will you just give us water, right? Now, just think through this. Though. Think about the situation here. This is, this is where life becomes real. 
Now I'll speak to parents. As a parent, when you teach and instruct your children, do they ever need to learn a lesson again? There's an obvious answer to that question, right? Do they ever need to have the lesson reinforced? Yes, that's why they're given hinder parts, right? Teachers, as a teacher, do you teach a truth or principle just once? Or do you find that you have to repeat it over and over and over again? But even in the Christian life, friends, we find ourselves having to be reminded of God's truth and the sinful struggles that we battle and how to trust Him rather than trusting in other things or even ourselves. We have to be reminded over and over and over again. Just because God has taught us a lesson once doesn't mean it's done. The reality is that He needs to reinforce it again and again and again. But we can be frustrated because our attitude might be, you know, we've, we've been there, God. We've got that. We, we get the point. Can you, just, can you just give us what we need? See, God is still testing Israel. He's still seeking to reveal their true nature, the, the, the true reality of their hearts. He's seeking to discipline them, to refine them, to mature them through these trials. Now, as the Lord tests them, what will he find? What he'll find is a contentious accusation. Verses 2 and 3 Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why do you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Rather than trusting God and turning to Him for help in their crisis, they respond sinfully. And I want you to notice, first of all, three words, three words that we find in this text. Two of them we've already seen, chapter 15 and chapter 16. The first word is the word grumbling, grumbling. And the idea there is sinful complaining due to not getting your needs met or your expectations are not being satisfied in the time that you want them or in the way that you want them. And so you grumble, you're complaining. And it really is a complaint against God. Then there's this word testing. And of course, the idea of testing as it's been used here is to seek, to prove, or expose the heart. And God is saying, I want, I want to seek and I want to expose to see whether or not they will listen to my word, understand my word, and obey my word. We saw that in chapter 16 and in chapter 15. And so we've seen this word test before. But here, it is the people of Israel that are dishonoring God by telling him that he must act on their demands. Will he obey their will? I mean, here's the kind of things that you can imagine them thinking or even possibly saying. If you truly love us, you will give us water now. Hey, you provided for us with water before, and you're providing us with manna now. So what gives? Where's the water? We know that you can give us water if you want to, so what's the problem? We're thirsty. And we need water now. And if you don't give it to us, it will prove that you really don't care about us. That's the word testing. The word grumbling. But there's a new word in this text, isn't there? It's the word quarreling here. Now, this word is much more aggressive. First of all, it's contentious. It's the kind of action and behavior that we're seeing in these peaceful protests when a protester stands in the face of a police officer and yells and screams in their face. It's not violent physically, but it is aggressive verbally. So it's contentious. But it's not just contentious, it's also 
a legal word. It's a legal term that speaks of taking formal legal proceedings. And so the quarreling is an expression of their grievances, which if not met will result in further action. And literally what's taking place, friends, is this. They are aggressively and contentiously taking God to court and accusing him of being evil. So how does this play out? Well, it plays out in three responses. First of all, they demand God's provision. Chapter 17, verse 2. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Give us water to drink. They demand God's provision. And so they quarrel with Moses. They demand this water from him. And they're saying all this while seeing the presence of God in the pillar of fire or the pillar of the cloud, while they're snacking on their honey wafer manna God has been providing daily. I don't know about you, but every once in a while when we go to the movie theater, I like to get, I think it's the number one. And it's the big bucket of popcorn, right? And you get a free refill of the bucket of popcorn. If you're like me, I get lots of butter with it in, you know, in layers, right? And you get like the big, big drink. But there's not a refill on the drink. So here's how it plays out. You go to the movie theater, you go sit down, and as the, the kind of the prelims are happening right there, you're like, <laughs> you're digging in, you're eating the, the popcorn and stuff like that. You're, you know, looking off the butter and all that kind of stuff. And of course, you have to wash it down. And usually what happens is we'll share this big drink, right? We're trying to be, you know, financially mindful. And, of course, before the movie even starts, it's like, okay, you know, the popcorn's gone. Better get it now before, you know, the movie starts and that kind of stuff. So you rush back. You finally get your, you know, your popcorn filled up again. You come back, and then you start digging in again. All of a sudden you go, and it's like, it's gone. Now what? And you can say, oh, I don't want to go. And who's going to go? We have to spend more money. Now, I'm just thinking about that just to say, here they are, and they have been providing, uh, God has been providing for them daily as they're on their journey. The, 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 the manna has been present with them. He has been present with them. But now they are thirsty. I mean, you just kind of get that tension. I got all this popcorn, but I don't have any water. Now, with their demands... They are presuming upon God, expecting God to be their divine genie to do their bidding and provide for them again, but according to their rules, according to their parameters. And they are putting him to the test. They're demanding that he act according to their will. So they demand God's provision. Secondly, they question God's protection. Did you read this in verse 3? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So they conclude by thinking irrationally that the whole reason God brought them out of Egypt was to kill them and their children and their livestock with thirst. And, of course, the response we have is, really? Let's get this straight. You weren't crying out to God for rescue when you were being treated with injustice and forced into slavery under the heavy hand of taskmasters. So God raising up Moses and Aaron to speak for him and bring Pharaoh and Egypt to their knees with the ten plagues was all just a waste of time? Are you telling me that God guiding you through the Red Sea and exercising just judgment on the oppressors, Pharaoh and his armies, was a pointless exercise? Are you telling me that your celebration after your Red Sea deliverance was just a bunch of noise? All of this is because God is cruel. 
who would give you freedom for a few short days and then allow you to die in the wilderness. What kind of God are you talking about here? And that's exactly what they're accusing God of. They're testing God by making him or taking him to court and accusing him of being a murderer. You're a cruel God who has deceived us and you brought us here so you could kill us. Now friends, this is not new. This twisted, irrational, scathing accusation has been present in the past. Go back to chapter 14 in your Bibles and look at verse 11. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? In other words, aren't the graves good enough here in Egypt? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. That was their concern. That was their panic. And then in chapter 16, verse 3, And the people of Israel said to, said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. That's quite an accusation. But this is the point. They're questioning God's protection. They're questioning his character. They're questioning his motives. So they demand God's provision, they question God's protection, but also they doubt God's presence. Now you have to jump down to verse 7 for this. At the end, we're told here that they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? See, they're grumbling, they're quarreling, and they're testing. God bore fruit in them, not taking seriously God's promise and His presence. He had led them in the wilderness by the pillar of cloud and fire. They have been eating God's provision of manna for a number of days, but they are ignoring what is obvious. They're saying, is the Lord among us or not? It's, it's like a marathon runner, or talking to a marathon runner, or asking a marathon runner who's halfway through the race, when are you going to actually start running? Or it's like the husband getting up from the couch on Thanksgiving Day after watching hours of football while his wife has been in the kitchen preparing the meal since the early hours of the morning. He comes to the kitchen and says, are you going to make a Thanksgiving dinner or what? <laughs> See, they stop seeing the facts because they are fuming about their demands. And the result is a mob mentality. And this is made clear by the words of Moses when he speaks to the Lord. They are almost ready to stone me. <laughs> you get that? Clearly and understandably, Moses feared for his life. And friends, we can be guilty of the same thing, can't we? We grow so comfortable with God's provision. We have food on the table. We're healthy. We have work and the ability to pay our bills. But something comes up in our lives that we don't like, and we don't have something that we feel is important or that we expect God to provide for. And we say to ourselves, where is God? Has he forgotten about me? What is he doing? Why isn't he providing for me? Why has God brought me this far just to disappoint me? All the while, we are sipping on a latte from Starbucks and stuffing down a Krispy Kreme donut. We forget what is obvious, what is clear, 
and what is true because we're so caught up with our expectations not being realized. And so we test God. And friends, to get an accurate picture of what is happening in this text, we need to ask, how does the Bible interpret this event? You can go to a lot of commentaries, but the best commentary in the Bible is the Bible, right? So how can the way Scripture interprets Scripture help but shed light on how we are to understand this text? So I'm going to walk through just a, a few passages here to help round out our understanding of what's going on. What does Scripture say is actually taking place here? Well, I invite you to, to look at Psalm 81. Psalm 81 here and verse 7. Here's what it says. In distress you called, and I delivered you. It's all right, this is God speaking. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Now, why is that significant? Because as we read Exodus here, what are we told? We're told that Israel was testing God. But the reality is that although Israel was testing God, God was testing Israel. Now, friends, C.S. Lewis has written a book entitled God in the Dock. Now, the dock is not like a pier that you go fishing on. The dock is a legal term that talks about that place where someone who is being accused of something in the court of law stands or sits. And in this book, it's a it's a, a catalog of ways in which man seeks to put God on trial. That's what man does. He gets angry with God and seeks to put him to the test. He seeks to put God on trial for his offenses against mankind. You're an evil God. You're a callous God. You're an unloving God. And that is what Israel is doing right now. So Psalm 81.7 is a healthy reminder that although Israel was putting God to the test, the reality was it was Israel that is truly in the dock. In other words, God is saying to them, look Israel, get this straight. I don't take your tests. I give tests. And then we go to Psalm 106, verses 9 through 13. Again, we're picking up in the middle of the psalm, but notice what it says. He rebuked the sea, and it became dry. And he led them through the deep as through the desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. We want water and we want it now. And we're even willing to get antagonistic and to quarrel and to argue to the point that we're almost ready to pick up stones and throw them at. Friends, this is what's happening. And so when they say, is the Lord among us or not, they are questioning the essential goodness of God. Is the Lord with us or not? Is the Lord good or not? Is the Lord real or not? Is the Lord powerful or not? Is the Lord trustworthy or not? Is the Lord for us or not? Is he or is he not? Friends, that is the question here. And you know how God is going to answer that question? When the people ask the question, is the Lord among us or not? God says, I am. Because notice what happens next. In the next section, this is where we get God's verdict. And one of the parts of the instruction is for Moses to go with the elders of Egypt to a place called Horeb. And do you remember what happened at Horeb? Horeb. It's where Moses encounters God in the burning bush, where God reveals himself as the I am. 
So we move now to this gracious verdict. We've seen the sin of the people, but I think it's also helpful for us, just almost as an aside, but I think it's essential to the story here that we recognize the struggle of leadership. Because you may have a sinning people, but you also have a struggling leadership, and that, of course, is Moses. He's already said to the people as they confronted him, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? So he understood the distinction with, I'm just the messenger, it's the Lord who you're really putting to the test. Now Moses says to the Lord in fear and frustration, what shall I do with this people? Now many a pastor has prayed that prayer before. And this is what he's saying as these people are responding in the way that they're responding. Things have escalated with them, that in their demand for me to produce water, that I am fearing for my safety, they're almost ready to stone me, he says. And friends, this is a crisis for the people of Israel. It, it is. There's no water. But it's also become a crisis for the leadership in Israel, and that leadership, of course, is Moses in particular, God's appointed mediator between him and Israel. Now, friends, when people's desires are not satisfied... They tend to take it out on leadership, don't they? We see this in sports. If a team has a bad season or is not playing well, or even if it has a group of players that are getting in trouble outside, might want to say outside of the sport, in their own personal lives, maybe with the police or maybe in certain relationships, and that, that, that causes then the team to not play well. You know who gets in trouble? You know who is fired? It's not the players. The coach. We see this in politics. When things are not going your way, you take it out on the governor or the sitting president. Don't tell me you haven't said it. Don't tell me you haven't said something even this morning about Governor Newsom or maybe even brought up Barack Obama or Donald Trump or, or Biden, whatever it might be. We have a tendency to go to the top and say, Psh, cut it off there. It's their fault. And again, friends, ultimately, this is how mob mentality works. We stop thinking, and we just go for the jugular of leadership. But friends, this happens in Christian leadership, too. The sheep turn on the shepherd. The sheep come up with their own interpretation of what God's Word says and understand that the sheep are often and usually influenced and shaped by the surrounding culture, so therefore they change or seek to seek a, a, a fresh or new understanding of what the Scripture actually says when the shepherd is saying, no, no, that's not right. This is what it says. Why? Because he is being careful with the text. He's not forcing it into the world's mold, as Scripture says. Friends, Christian leadership is not a leisurely walk through the park, is it? It's often serious, daunting, exhausting, and lovingly confrontational. And it's a reminder to be in prayer for those who seek to care for your souls as under-shepherds. Now, that's not the main purpose of this text, but it sure is there in this interaction between Moses and the people, isn't it? Now, I want you to notice, first of all, Moses' obedience. What does Moses do? How does he respond? I'm going to be pretty brief here with his responses. But first of all, he cries out to God, right? So Moses cried to the Lord. What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. Now, Moses is likely struggling himself, right? He may be questioning his role as a leader. I mean, I can't control these people. Look at what they're doing. This is always a question that a leader is is having to ask himself when the people are somewhat revolting against them. He may be struggling with some sin in his personal response to them. He may be full of anger. He may be full of fear. He may be frustrated or exasperated sinfully. He may just want to give up in desperation. Now, what shall I do with this people? But even with those feelings, with those questions, with those emotions swirling about, Moses fights to do the right thing. He turns to God for help. Now, friends, just hear this. Your feelings don't always have to be in sync in order to turn to God for help. In fact, the fact that your feelings are out of sync 
may be the very reason why you need to turn to God for help at that point in time. Secondly, he listens to God, right? In verses uh, 8, sorry, verses 5 and 6, God gives him just a, a, a list of instructions that he needs to do, and we find then the content of verses 5 and 6 um, uh, that, that he, will, he will take it in, and ultimately he will follow the instructions. And we find that at the end of verse 6, and Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Just think about this. I mean, it's really a very simple formula, isn't it? Turn to God, listen to God, follow his instructions, right? Turn to God, listen to God, follow his instructions. It seems so simple, but friends, we are complex people, and we have to fight through our emotions to apply simplicity uh, to be reality. And friends, this is the struggle, but you know what? Here's, here's Moses, and he is being such a good example for us of how we need to interact when things are turning on us or we're feeling the pressure. He cries out to the Lord, he listens to the Lord, and then he follows his instructions. But now I want you to notice God's response. And this is, this is the heart of the text, friends. So we need to take a closer look at verses 5 and 6. So let me just read it, and then we'll, we'll, we'll unpack four, uh, four thoughts from these two verses. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. First of all, I want you to notice the instruction to take the elders. So the idea here is that they would be Witnesses, that they would see what is going to take place. What I'm about to do uh, before you is to be done in the presence of the elders of the people, and they will not only witness it, but then they will also be able to communicate to the people that this is what took place. So this is, uh, this is what God is about to do. It is for posterity. It is to be remembered. Secondly, he says, and take the staff. In your hand, the staff with which you struck the Nile. So the staff here is a significant object in the book of Exodus, isn't it? And it was used in different ways. It was an instrument of judgment, in particular when God enacted the plagues. But it was also an instrument of deliverance to part the waters of the Red Sea. Now the question is this, in what way is God intending for Moses to use the staff. Well, we just look at the text, and we realize it says, take the staff with which you struck the Nile. So Moses is to take the staff to be used as an instrument of judgment, but not any kind of judgment. Ultimately, we'll see it is a judgment on the water. With Egypt, the judgment was to take away the water that the Egyptians would drink because of their sin of unbelief. Take the elders, take the staff. Third, go to Horeb. Pulling a few things here together to kind of get the flow of things. He says, go at the end of verse 5. And then he says, I'll be at the rock of Horeb. I'll be standing there. So if you remember, Horeb is where God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. It's a reminder of God's self-identification as the I am that I am, as Yahweh. So God is saying, when you get to the rock of Horeb, I will be present. I will stand before you. I will stand before the elders of the people. I'll be standing on that rock. And then, of course, what he says is he says, and then strike the rock. Just as Moses struck the waters with God's wrathful judgment, so now, with God's instructions, Moses is to strike a judgment blow upon the rock. God's wrath is to be poured out on the rock. Now, hear this. God's answer 
for Israel's sinful rebellion is for Moses to strike the rock. Now, it's not the rock that is struck, but it's God. Moses strikes God. Moses doesn't just strike God, but Moses strikes God with the rod of God's judgment. So that the rock of Horeb, God himself, is offered up and takes upon himself the judgment for the sins that his people deserve. You see what's happening here? The people deserved judgment for their rebellion, for their wickedness, for their sin, for their testing. But rather than pour out his wrath on them, what does he do? He uses the rod of judgment to strike the rock, to strike himself. Now I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's really important. And I know over the past uh, couple of weeks we've looked at this, this chapter as Paul reflects back on uh, these texts and he gives uh, understanding, interpretation to what's going on. And I want you to notice that in this text, it's full of powerful and deep theological images and themes. We're not going to be able to deal with all of them, but we'll touch on them to get to the point here. It says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses. The whole idea of being baptized into Moses has nothing to do with, let's say, baptism. It's a word that describes that all were together, united together, identifying with Moses, right? They were one people led by one God through the leadership of one mediator, right? So they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. See, it's what the Apostle Paul says here that should rock, no pun intended, your theological world. He says, and the rock was Christ. Now, not that there was a rock that was somehow kind of you know, physically wandering around the wilderness with them. But it's saying that the the very presence of God, the very provision of God came from the water that he was providing as they journeyed in the wilderness. Paul is saying that God's provision came through substitution. And that substitution, that rock, was Christ. So friends, Jesus is the rock. So here in the wilderness, what we have seen in just these few accounts is that Jesus is the water of life. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is also the rock from which water now comes. So Moses struck the rock instead of striking the people, and water flowed to satisfy and save the people. Jesus, the rock, was struck for our salvation. Instead of striking us, God struck the Son. He died the death that we deserve to die. So Jesus gave us the water we desperately needed. And that water can only come as a result of the striking judgment that God had placed on His Son as our substitute. Listen now to how the prophet Isaiah describes our provision through substitution. Isaiah chapter 53, you know this passage really, really well. Make the connections here, beginning at verse 4. Surely, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced. For our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I mean, it just boggles your mind. We are the ones that deserve the wrath. 
We are the ones that deserve to be struck by the rod of judgment. But instead, God graciously, as a covenant-keeping God, pours out His wrath, not on His people, but on His Son. And the result of that, friends, is life. You and I and the rest of society are like an angry, entitled mob accusing God of evil and demanding that He act according to our will to meet our desires. And God responds to our rebellion and unbelief with grace. And instead of pouring out His wrath on us, He pours it out on His Son so that we can drink freely of the reconciling water of His grace. Friends, that is powerful stuff. What a Savior we have. Now, I don't think that Moses quite understood all of that. <laughs> As the, the, the progressive revelation of the Word of God comes, we, we find it being interpreted as, as writers inspired by the Holy Spirit look back and are able to explain what is actually happening there. We are the beneficiaries of that. We have the, the, the fuller awareness of what or who this rock was. So now... After this gracious, gracious um, response by God, we move now to verse 7. And this is a scathing summary, isn't it? And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So it's because of Israel's sinful and rebellious actions of testing the Lord and asking the question, is the Lord among us or not, that the names Massa and Meribah are given. Massa means trial or testing, temptation. Meribah means protest, contention, quarrel, and strife. How would you like it for a location to be named after one of your sinful failures? See, the issue here is that this was the legacy of Israel in the wilderness. This is, this is what they proved to be, a rebellious people, a sinful people, a people who consistently, although God presented Himself and provided for them over and over and over again, they would continue to not trust in Him, and they would fight against Him. So this is what they're known for. But friends, you... And I can be guilty of, of being too comfortable as we're seated on our moral high horse. And we need to be reminded that this is not just a picture of them, this is also a picture of us when we choose to fight against God and His will. Let me draw your attention to Psalm 95. Psalm 95, where the psalmist reflects on this text in a very sobering manner. He begins by worshiping or calling people to worship the Lord, the Creator who is above all gods, and then he exhorts the people. And this is what he says Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation. Oh boy, I don't want to be the recipient of that. And said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. What is the psalmist getting at? Oh, he's getting at that over and over again, Israel failed to trust in the Lord in the wilderness. They hardened their hearts. They put God to the test. And it's the same issue that held them back from entering into the promised land. God told them to go, if you remember. It's yours. But oh, the people are too big, and oh, the cities are too large, right? And even though they had seen the proof of God's faithfulness and His provision time and time again, 
They went astray in their hearts and demonstrated that they did not know God's ways. But friends, then the writer of Hebrews picks up on Psalm 95. So let's turn to Hebrews now in chapter 3. I want you to turn your Bibles, not just to look at the screen. I want you to, to see how the Word of God here is connected and how it connects together and why this is important. In fact, the writer of Hebrews quotes this section that I just quoted. So I'm going to read it for you again, beginning at verse three, or verse 7 of, of Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, catch that. So he's, he's tying together Psalm 95 with the events that happen in the book of Exodus, saying this is all revealed by the Holy Spirit. He says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go away in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. I mean, it's almost a direct quote, right? Now, here we continue on reading. Take care, brothers. So this is now he's speaking to his audience based on Psalm 95. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence Firm to the end, as it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter into rest? But to those who were disobedient, notice verse 19, so we see that they were unable to enter rest because of what? Unbelief. Here's the word that describes and summarizes all of those attitudes and behaviors. God's answer to the sinful and rebellious unbelief of Israel was to strike the Son of God, Jesus Christ, with the full brunt of the wrath of of God. Now hear this, friends. God was angry with Israel, and he was angry with their sin. But his wrath was poured out on Christ the rock. And friends, hear this. God is still angry at our sin. Don't think that he's not. He is. But his wrath has been poured out on Jesus Christ, His Son. You see, we can, we can be so cavalier with our sin because we think, oh, you know, God's grace, it covers it. It covers it at a cost. The wrath was poured out on Christ. He's angry at sin. That's why He exercises His wrath on His Son. Friends, it's a sobering thought. Man left to himself without God is still under the wrath of God. But there is good news. Jesus Christ bore the wrath of the Father on the cross so that those who repent and believe would have their sins forgiven and be welcomed into God's family. You see, he lived a life that we could not live. He died the death that you and I deserve. He bore the wrath intended for us. He is the substitute that brings the provision of eternal life. And as a result, it is through Jesus Christ that we experience the joy of living water. Refreshing, cool, satisfying, strengthening spiritual water that never runs dry. So friends, truly, this was a shameful day in the history of Israel. But truly, it is a glorious day in God's plan 
of redemption. As we bring things to a close, I want to just go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 because we read up to verse 5 and what's, what Paul says in verse 6 is helpful for us. He says, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do you get that? Yes, it's to reveal Christ. He is the one that we need to see. He is the one that we need to focus on. He is the one that we need to praise because He is the rock who bears the wrath of God. But Paul's purpose in identifying all that is to say, now look, you're God's children. They acted in rebellion. Don't do that, friends. Don't follow their example. So, as we just kind of end here, I just want to bring to your attention three things that I think will be helpful. It's very, very simple, nothing complex, but I think helps just draw all this together. Number one, guard your heart. Friends, this is so important, especially in the world that we're living in today. We're so polarized. It's so easy to get caught up with the, the wind of something you saw in a video or something that was put on Twitter or something that was said, and we can just be... Look, it's so easy to get caught up with the mob. And often that results in sin. So guard your heart by allowing the Word of God to feed your heart, to protect your heart, to give clarity and discernment to your heart so that you can step out and see with clarity, with patience, and with wisdom. And having worked on guarding your heart in the midst of whatever problem it is, turn to Jesus. When you see what appears to be a horrible video about someone being killed or something like that, your first response may not be to be filled with rage. The first response then of someone who's guarding their heart is to say, Lord, you are fully aware of what is going on here. Help me to see what is true. Help me to glorify you. Lord, help me if I'm able to be a part of a solution, if that's what you want. But give me wisdom. Give me discernment. I want to look to you. You are the bread. You are the water. You are the rock. You are the one that provides satisfaction and direction and help and nourishment for what I need in this time. And finally, rest. Rest in his grace. See, friends, it's so easy for us to forget the magnitude of God's gracious deliverance, our salvation. Israel forgot. I mean, they probably remembered. It was probably stored in their head, but practically speaking, it was forgotten. And that's why God draws us to celebrate the Lord's Supper because he wants us to make sure that as often as we do it, and I think that should be pretty regularly, as we do that, we are reminded of our sinfulness. We're reminded of the, the wrath that was poured out, not on us, but on Jesus Christ and how that all took place. And it takes us back to celebrate the wonder and the beauty of this deliverance we call salvation. And friends, we must, we must, having reflected on that salvation, learn to rest in it. And by resting in it, that means that we are trusting what he says and seeking to give him glory with our lives. Lord, we ask for help. We're going to walk out today of our homes or to work tomorrow, and there is going to be a spirit of antichrist all around us, a spirit of rebellion, a spirit, Lord, that is, that is fighting for man's passions and desires, and you've called us to be your children and to live for your glory. Well, Lord, it's so easy to get sucked in. It's so easy to get caught up 
But Lord, what you want us to get sucked into and caught up with is you and your gospel and your truth. We ask, Lord, as we've reflected on this text, that not only would we see our own sinfulness in this text, but that we would see the answer to that, Lord, and that is the fact that you didn't pour out your wrath on us, you poured it out on your Son, and we are so undeserving. But Lord, as the recipients, we have great privilege and responsibilities. Lord, help us not to fall prey to their example, but to learn from it so that we can press on and that we can pursue what it is you've called us to be and do in such a way, Lord, that would bring honor and glory to your name. Help us, Lord, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen.